Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to our study of Habakkuk. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we do not want to start one minute before we just hand this all over to you. Lord, we praise you. We know how important that is, how you love us to acknowledge who you are. So we do just that. And Lord, we just also pray for your Holy Spirit to just open up our hearts and our ears and our eyes. We want to be able to be so in tune with you that we do not miss the importance of this chapter. So Lord, we commit it to you and we are thankful that you are our God and that you love us so much to make a way of salvation for us. And then also how to live our lives abundant and free. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are grateful for God's word, aren't we? And this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true, and it is all that I need. Now, we have left Habakkuk. We, we started uh, the first couple lessons with, with Habakkuk. Um, he is that prophet that is between the time of the kingdom of Assyria being, or the kingdom of Israel going into um, captivity, exile to the Assyrians. And then we're also um, before the kingdom of Judah is taken into exile. And it's like he knows exactly what happened and the pain and the suffering and of, of what happened when the Assyrians, Assyrians came out and took over um, the kingdom of Israel and never to actually return. And he is so sure that that example and, and that knowledge, as, he, as he's a prophet, and he's probably been trying to preach to the people of the kingdom of Judah, telling them, can't you see what's happened? Can't you see that God means what he says? And so, you know, when they don't listen and when they're still evil and when they're just carrying on in their own ways, Habakkuk complains. He just cries out to the Lord and with his complaint, do something. I mean, they are just not listening to me and they need to be corrected. And, and then the Lord comes back with this answer and says, oh, believe me, I do see and I do care and I am raising up. And he talked about how he was raising up this this absolutely worst kingdom possible, this kingdom that is just going in and taking over nation after nation, and and how he says, um, I'm raising them up to take over the kingdom of Judah because of their disobedience. And then when, when um, Habakkuk hears that, of course, he, he kind of says, like what we all say, Lord, we want you to correct us. We want you to discipline us. We, we want to get back on track, but not that. Or that is way too severe. That is too harsh. And, and then he, the Lord has to just correct him and, and make sure he knows that he's God and he's up to something and, and that his timing is perfect and the reasons why he does what he does are perfect. Why? Because he's perfect. And then we see that that white space between chapter one and two and we see how in that white space we see a change. Something happened um, to Habakkuk. Um, and what happened was he surrendered. He submitted to God's plan. 
He submitted to God's will because the end of chapter 1, he's still throwing up his hand saying, how could you use someone who just comes after them like a fisherman catching fish on a good day? And he put that in such a great analogy, but, you know, how, how could you do that? This, this nation, this empire, this Nebuchadnezzar, he could care less about the people. All he cares is hungry power, and all he cares about is himself and what he can achieve. And the thing is, it's, that kind of makes you smile, is that here it's that it's that empire. It's, it's those rulers. It's those powerful rulers that think it's them. That, that's just almost hilarious because this is God raising up this kingdom to be able to show that he will do whatever it takes. I mean, his people mean so much to him. And I know this sounds like it's so harsh and it's so hard, but he knows what they need. And finally, maybe after much prayer and pouring out his heart and he submits, Habakkuk does, and he, he just surrenders to God's will. And he just kind of believes that, okay, this is the best thing that can be done. And so he stands, he says, I will stand at watch. I, I, I will stand at my watch and, and I will look to see. I will watch. I will look. And he is going to watch and submit to God's will. Sometimes we, we don't understand. Sometimes, just like here, he didn't understand, he didn't like it, but you have to submit. Why? Because God is God, and he is in the middle of it all. He always knows what's best, even when our human eyes can't see or understand. That's why we pray for our spiritual eyes, the eyes of our heart, that they will be open to what what God has, that we trust him with his ways. His ways are very seldom our ways. So that's that's where we left off last week and and it's pretty it's pretty wonderful really because even though the first chapter starts out kind of kind of harsh and kind of hard and kind of complainy and whiny and that but look what happens. I mean, Habakkuk just reflects human nature. And just when hard times come or, you know, we ask for one thing and the Lord does it differently than what we expect. And no, we didn't mean that. Then we just have to finally come to grips with the fact, are we going to believe him? Are we going to trust him enough to let him have his way in this situation? To do what he has to do so that we grow and mature and know him better. The more we know him and who he is and and what he's able to do, we start relinquishing ourselves to him. Our submission, our surrender isn't it isn't as hard. And I think this is what we see with Habakkuk. And then the Lord comes back with this answer. The Lord comes back with the answer. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. So after Habakkuk came back with the second complaint and said, oh, I didn't mean that. And then 
he submits. Somehow the Lord deals with him and he submits. And then the Lord comes back with this great answer. And he tells Habakkuk, now write down what I'm going to tell you. Write down this revelation. Why? So that we can be studying it today. So that we can um, relate this story to our own lives and realize that we have a God that doesn't change and that his principles, the way he handles sin and disobedience and how he handles obedience and a submissive heart, we have to learn this and be able to see in God's word why it was written for each and every one of us personally. So he's saying, write it down. People in the future are going to need to hear this and, and know this example. This is a good one. So write it down and make it plain. Did you notice that? Make it plain on tablets. Make it plain. Don't make it complicated. Don't make it difficult. Just state it the way it is. This is what we need, isn't it? We just need plain, uncomplicated, not difficult to understand. We just need the truth. I think that's what people are crying for today. And here, way back hundreds and hundreds of years, God is saying to Habakkuk, this is how I want you to write it down. And I want you to write it on tablets because I want it to last. I want it to last so that a herald may run with it. I want it to last so those who hear it, those who take it to heart, can run with it, can run forward in their lives because they know that they have a God who has a timetable that's perfect and has a plan that's perfect. So write it down, Habakkuk. Make it plain and, and put it on tablets so it's lasting because we want people to be able to not only hear it but learn from it and then have it change their life that they can run with it. They can run in their lives with it because it will give them the substance and exactly what they need to live their life for the revelation awaits an appointed time. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. I think this is a twofold prophecy. Again, so many times in the Old Testament, the prophecies are twofold. For, for one, um, the first prophecy is you're not going to see it, Habakkuk. You won't see it. This is why it's a prophecy for you um, that it, it awaits. It's not going to happen right now, but at my appointed time. And believe me, though, but what I've told you, it will not prove false. It will very much happen just the way I said it. And even though it might not be right now, and that isn't that what we, we hate to wait, don't we? Um, even though it might not be now, you wait for what I've said. You wait for the promise that I've told you. Because it will certainly come, and it will not delay. In my timetable, so you wait for it. But I think the second prophecy is for you and I. The same principles even though we know exactly what happened, that Babylon came and, and took over the kingdom of Judah and all that, we know that that all happened. 
So now the prophecy that still awaits us is pretty much the same principle, is that I am coming back. God's got a plan that he will come back, and if, if Jesus will come back. The second person of the Godhead will come back, and he will right wrong. He will create justice. He will come back and and be the judge to all those who did not respond to him. So when you read it in that prophecy, it's like, oh yeah, we got to hold on. The revelation that we know that he has said is going to happen, it awaits at an appointed time and it speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it and it will certainly come and will not delay. So I think it's kind of our prophecy as well. Hang in there, hold on, cling to the Lord because what he has promised us will take place. And then verse 4, see, he is puffed up. This is the Lord saying, see, he is puffed up. Whether he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, whether he's talking about the empire of Babylon, they think they are, they think they're the savior of the world. They think they are the powerful, the most powerful. They think that they rule. And so he said, see, he is puffed up. The King James um, writes it this way. Behold, behold the proud. And, and that word, that word proud, it, I think we need to just stop and not go too fast here. Because we're going to see such a contrast in this verse. The contrast between the world and... And the unbeliever, the the self, the self, um, the person who's just so consumed with himself, the the one who is the center of their own universe, and all that kind of thing. We see the contrast of that kind of person, that kind of world, versus the one who has accepted Christ, who walks by faith, who walks in righteousness, who's been justified, who's been made right by God, because there is no other that can do that. We're going to see the contrast. So first of all, let's just look at that word pride. It's kind of like, well, it is sin. Pride is sin. We know from Proverbs 6 that the Lord hates the proud, and it's detestable to him. And I think that he is in the business. That's one of his, his things that he is doing today is he is knocking down the proud. It's just something he cannot tolerate. And pride is like sin. The, the letter I is in the middle of sin. The letter I is in the middle of pride. And that's so good for us to even see that that should remind us that when we are when we choose to sin when we choose not to fight the temptation when we fall into sin it all has to do with me and how i feel and what i want and the same thing with pride 
that letter I, a proud person, it is all about themselves. And you know, pride can take on a whole, uh, it can take on a lot of different shapes and sizes. In fact, I think we all know, and none of us really can tolerate or even like sometime a proud person who is just so puffed up with themselves, you know, and, but pride can, can be in such different kind of, kind of things. Now, I think when someone who is trusting their wealth and walking around with all that they have achieved and all what they have, well, they're, they're proud. They're proud of themselves because of what they have. But do you know that in contrast, a person who, a poor person who doesn't have anything can also be proud because of his needing attention because of what he does not have. I know that's a little that's a little hard to understand, but whenever whenever pride, whenever a situation wants attention to themselves, then we're on a slippery slope of pride. When all you care about is is your own self. See, pride looks at themselves. So that's the first thing we got to look at in the first part of verse four. Um, a talent person can can be proud of what he can do. A religious person can be proud of his religion. A person who is an unbeliever, believe it or not, an unbeliever can be proud of his unbelief. And a, a, an established man, someone who is. Um, in a high social class, can be very proud of his place in society. But also a counter-cultural person, someone who just loves bucking the system. And there are, we, we know people like that. They just love to buck the system. Well, you know what? They're proud in their, in their outcast situation. They, they love the thought that they're getting the attention by their stance and they know that the majority of people kind of cast them out or don't believe the way they do. They take pride in, in their outcast status. A learned man is very proud of his intelligence and learning but a simple person can also be very proud in their simplicity. And so, I mean, I could go on and on, but I'm just trying to make us aware of there's, there isn't anything that we can't fall into the category of pride. Anytime, any situation, we choose to want it to look at us. Anytime we want the whole idea of what we're in the middle of to look at us, that's pride. And we have to really see how the Lord does not like pride. 
but it is a universal problem. And I think every one of us has to be mindful. That's why I'm taking the time to kind of go through it. Because for me personally, you know, you don't think that you're prideful, but it's such a fine line. When, when you achieve something or accomplish something or when you're feeling sorry for yourself about something and you, you want attention drawn to you, that's pride. And that's why we have to see the contrast in this verse. See, he has puffed up. His desires are not upright. Because why? They're all about himself. And the upright are when it's up when it's about the Lord, when, when your actions are, when you're living right. And then that's why he says, but the righteous will live by faith. The righteous, King James says, the just will live by faith. Does that phrase, does that ring a bell to you? It did for me. I had no idea that this phrase came from a little book called Habakkuk. That the Lord said this through Habakkuk, that the just, the righteous will live by faith. We know those verses. We know those verses from when, when Paul says it in Romans 1.17, that the righteous will live by faith. That he also says it in Galatians 3 verse 11, the righteous, the just will live by faith. The writer of Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 38, the righteous will live by faith. But it came from Habakkuk chapter 2. So the righteous, the righteous, those who have been made right will live not according to themselves, but what is faith? The righteous live by faith. That is complete trust and belief in God. Remember in, 11, in Hebrews 11 when it describes faith? Faith is believing what you can't even see. You trust instead. And so the contrast is that fine line is do I want, do I want the attention to be on me? Or do I, in my actions, does it come from within and I'm reaching out to the one who has made me right? And so simply, is it about him? Is it about the Lord or is it about me? There's that fine line that we always have to check in anything we do, anything we say, any motive, check it. Is it really about me or is it really about him? I read a story about John Bunyan, not Paul Bunyan, John Bunyan. He was the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. And he was also a preacher. He was a writer, an English writer, but he was also a preacher. And one day after a sermon, he came down from the platform, and there was a gentleman who said, I just wanted to tell you what a fine sermon you preached. Now, you know John Bunyan. He's a wonderful man. He's, he's written. He's preached. He believes. He's, he's great in the Lord's eyes. I mean, the Lord loves him. He loves the Lord. I mean, but I want to just show you here how quick and how he was willing to tell this story. 
after this man told him what a fine sermon he preached, Bunyan answered, you're too late. The devil told me that before I stepped down from the pulpit. See how quick the devil wants to take something that has been given by the Lord, who, who it's all... It's all about the Lord. And because we're the avenue that was used, we have a tendency to break our arm, pat ourselves on the back. When it's all the Lord, see how quick that fine line. And, and Bunyan was willing to admit it and, and had to make that right. But to be able to say to that man, you're too late. The devil already told me I did it. I mean, how quick he almost took the credit. You almost thought that I was, I was so good today. See, this chapter, I think, is such a mirror. Because I think some of us, even though we are good Christians, we love living for the Lord. But we still live in this human, sinful body that if we're not clinging, if we're not checking every second, every thought, every word, every action, how quick it can turn into pride instead of the righteous will live by faith. Do you know that? Do you, do you know that that a praying, a praying Christian, a praying brother or sister in Christ can be proud of his prayer? A growing brother and sister in Christ can be proud of their growth. A humble, a humble brother or sister can be proud of their humility. And, and the Bible talks about false humility. So you say, well, you know, if someone gives you a compliment, well then, you know, it, it's so hard to just take it and just say thank you but I learned something from Corey Tinboom that has helped me because people do not like false humility or they don't like you going oh no it's not me no it's the Lord we we know that and so sometimes when you've been complimented and and they are hard to take but you know your heart, and you know that God sees your heart. And Corey said, when people tell me and give me a compliment and tell me that I did well or they, they really loved what I said, I just say thank you. Thank you. And she says, but in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, a rose, a rose. And as these compliments come, she says, at the end of the day, I take this bouquet of roses and I hand it over to the one who gave me what I needed when I needed it. And I thought that was just such a good way to always keep in mind that as much as we love the praise of men, it makes us feel good. How quick we have to check and say, Yes, but everything that I have and everything that I am has been given by him. And I do not want pride to get in the way. And so, Lord, I take this compliment and I give it back to you. I want to be, in this verse, I want to be the one that has been made righteous 
by Jesus. And that's the only way that I am what I am. And then he goes on in verse 5. He comes back and says, indeed, wine betrays him. And we've seen that from our past studies, haven't we? Wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. I, I thought about that. Arrogant and never at rest. You know the phrase, the more you have, the more you want. The arrogant who just keeps thinking they must achieve and achieve more and more and more. But I can see why they're never at rest because it's probably where workaholics come into play. They need more and more. And then the more you have, the more you have to take care of. And so it takes more time. And so you, you just can't rest because there's just so much to do because I have so many things that I have to take care of. Because he is greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. That was a, a new phrase for me. Um, and like death is never satisfied. I found a verse in, in Proverbs 27 verse 20. Solomon wrote this proverb that death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are the eyes of men death and destruction it's just like it wants more and more and more greedy greedy as the grave death just seems to take more and more people every day you read the obituaries every day you hear about somebody so I guess I do understand death is greedy it's never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. He's just absolutely ruthless, merciless, selfish. And I think the more that we put these kind of words describing the heart of of man without the Lord, without a Savior, without that confession, repentance, and that acknowledgement for who you really are without Christ. You've got to see the ugliness. And then, and then in verse 6, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, now we're going to go into five woes. Now, this is the Lord saying, you know, he's talking, and he says, but you know what? It's going to come back to bite him. Sometimes, some way, somehow, they're going to come back back at him. Look at, woe to him who piles up stolen goods. Woe to him who just keeps cheating and stealing and don't care who they hurt so that they can achieve what they want. Woe to him. 
What to him who does pile up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion? How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly rise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. See, the Lord wants to, and all of these woes, you watch how, yes, they're ruthless and, and they could care less about anybody else. However, with every woe to them, looks good for a time, but God is going to come back and it will bite them. They will pay for their actions, for their deeds. Will not your debtors suddenly rise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So woe to you, you cheater. You heartless person. And then look at the next one. Woe to you. Woe to you who builds his realm by unjust gain. To set his nest on high. To escape the clutches of ruin. Woe to the greedy. The first one is pretty much, you know, woe to those who think that they could just do whatever they want at anyone's expense. Woe to those who are greedy and build their realm by unjust gain. To set his nest on high so that they can be protected. To escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many people. Shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The first that came to my mind with that was Luke 12 Verse 16 to 21, where Jesus was telling the people, you know, you can gain the whole world. It can look so good, and people can be awed of what you have, and they just have got you on such a pedestal. But down deep, you have a rotten heart because it's all been about you. And you've you have plotted the ruin of many people's shame in your own house and for forfeiting your life. Yeah, you might have gained the whole world, but you have forfeited your soul. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams, beams of the woodwork will echo it. Third woe, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. Woe to those who are violent. Woe to them who build cities with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire and the nations exhaust themselves for nothing for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. I told you, with every woe, it's like the Lord comes back and says, but I triumph. 
those who are violent, who think that they are powerful and it's by their might, they can do anything. Verse 15 or verse 13, woe to him who drinks, who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that they can gaze on their naked bodies. It's kind of a yuck verse, isn't it? It's just gross. But that is so our world today. I've said this many times, but, you know, it used to be our West Michigan was known as a place where there was a church on every corner. It's changed. Now we're known as a, a community or an area that there's a bar on every corner, a brewery, they call it. And as fun-loving as that all seems, it does, it does hurt. Because so often it gets done in excess. When he says, woe to those who keep, if you keep drinking until they are drunk and then their actions. So then you have that the immoral thing to deal with here too. And there, there's a few statistics about drunkenness. I mean, how it affects families. And in one year's time, do you realize that that there are almost 100,000 deaths in our nation? 25,000 of those deaths are by drunk drivers alone. Six million non-fatal injuries, and 100 billion in economic losses, such as unemployment and loss of productivity. So, if you want statistics, and I suppose if you even want science, it's just a known fact that your brain doesn't work well, your reflexes don't work well. And it just does not do good things. It does damage. And woe to him who just keeps doing that. It makes you look like a big shot for a time. But eventually, look at verse 16. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. It is going to come back around. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done, verse 17, to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood, you've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. I mean, this is quite a rough picture, isn't it? And then he moves to this topic. The Lord moves to this topic that just kind of lends itself. After all all of those four woes, there's coming another woe. But he precedes it in verse 18 by, of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? 
why would you talk about an idol right now? Because those four woe to you's pretty much talked about woe to you when it's all about you. Woe to you when it's all about you. And you do what you want, when you want, and how you want. But it's like God is saying, mark my words. I will triumph. And the idol of self and material things, or for he who makes it, who makes an idol, trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, the idolater. And we're just not talking about little wood statues. We're talking about the things of this world. That we think this is what real life is all about. It's what I achieve here. It's success. It's the name that I've, that I've made for myself here. It's all the attributes that I get here. The idolater when you worship your own self. Wake up. Can it give you real true guidance? No. It takes you down the wrong path and you just have one Run consequence after another. And you wonder why you're so miserable. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. Oh, it always looks so good, so fun, so beautiful, so appealing to you. But there's really no breath in it. But, verse 20. This is quite the end. And can you imagine Habakkuk listening to this? I just love taking the whole book the way we're doing it. Just the way we're seeing it. How it progresses. How his first complaint. And then God's answer. And then his second complaint. But then his submission. And then how God answers him. After he's submitted, he says, now Habakkuk. Let me show you what life without me really does look like. And I, I want my people to see that. Because maybe that will wake them up and see the contrast between being puffed up with themselves or being willing to walk by faith, to be justified by faith, to be made right by faith, because you've chosen to believe in a God that you cannot see. You're, you're trusting him because you believe by faith that he's perfect and his promises are true and that his word is everything you need. Verse 20 what a way to, to end this chapter, this word from the Lord to Habakkuk. After he said all those things, all the woe to use, all the five woe to use. 
do you get it, Habakkuk? Do you get that I'm going to win, that, that they won't? They will never win. Evil will never win. And puffed up prideful people will never win. I can just hear the Lord in this chapter more than I've ever heard it before. I can't stand people who are caught up in themselves, who think that they can achieve. They think they are responsible for the good that's coming from them. But, circle that word, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let all the earth be silent before him. All these other idols, gods of this world that people put so much trust in, they're, they're going to fail. They're actually dead already. The Lord is alive. The Lord is in his holy temple. And we should be awed by that. You know, in this chapter, I, I went over that verse over and over again. Because it's, it, to me, it's quite chilling. Don't ever forget that the Lord is alive and he is in his holy temple. And let all earth be silent before him. I believe God is saying to Habakkuk, you wondered in the first part when you came to me with your complaint, do, do I see? Do I care? Am I, am I going to act? Am I going to do anything about it? I think this verse just really shows Habakkuk, really humbles him. I think God shows us, oh, believe me, I know what's going on. God is saying to Habakkuk, believe me, I know that Babylon was filled with pride and greed and violence and drunkenness and idolatry. I know that. I know everything. But I think he also says, don't kid yourself. The Lord is in his holy temple. You just watch and you wait because I know exactly how to deal with it. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wake-up call. Father, help us to take a look at that one verse in particular that just makes us look at that word pride and to see if our actions, our words, even our thoughts, thoughts. Is it about me? Do I want the, do I want the, the accolades about me? Do I want people to see me? Or do we want to really truly live by faith and trust and believe a God that maybe we don't see actually in human form, but we trust his word and we experience his power in our lives. Father, help us to see that even as Christians, that even in our devotions, in our good works, and in our feelings, in our circumstances, 
that if it isn't drenched, if it isn't controlled by our faith in you, if it's not about you, it's worthless. Our devotions, our works, our feelings, our circumstances, it's worthless. If it is not covered, if we are not walking by faith, because the righteous do. The righteous, really, when they are connected to you, when, you're, when they're connected to your spirit, Father, you've promised us that the righteous will be made right and we will walk by faith in you. Oh, thank you for giving us everything we need. It's such a simple lesson, but oh, oh, oh we needed to hear it. It's uncomfortable, convicting sometimes. But we need it in our face sometime. Habakkuk did. He was a great man, prophet. So, Lord, we can never think that we do not need discipline and instruction from you. And thank you for being willing to give it. In Jesus' name, amen.